When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Good evening, Rifters. This is Rifts and Rules, the 5e D&D podcast, where we go through the many 5e books and talk about various rules to enhance your gameplay experience. I'm Nathan, the Dungeon Master of Riftwake. And I'm Remy, a player on Riftwake and a Dungeon Master myself. And today, we're here to talk about political correctness. So this is a somewhat unusual topic for us in that it's not actually rules based. Nonetheless, it is an important topic that deserves some attention from us as it is a thing that can and often does come up in a Dungeons and Dragons game. So with that being said, hey, Nathan, what is political correctness and why should we give a damn? So political correctness is basically what mo- like um, society has, has generally determined as what is okay for someone to say. So how we can use this is, for example, um, out of game, perhaps it's not good to basically treat women as lesser than men. And and the real fun part is bringing this concept of political bringing this concept of political correctness into game. So like within the world, what are certain things that are okay and not okay, which is rather interesting. Indeed. So the summed up version, political correctness is just what is it that both in game and out of game are the social lines that you want to either cross or not cross. And from the in-game perspective, sometimes to make a point. And then from the out-of-game perspective of just you are in a social group and it's important to understand what are the beliefs of the people around you in order to have a more harmonious game. So there are many, many aspects and degrees of how this could be relevant. So we're just going to go through what we believe to be the most common ones and just some fun ways later on of how this could be relevant and useful in the D&D game. So before anything else, a kind of disclaimer that I do want to add here, which is that this is a topic that people disagree on very often. But how that disagreement takes place is something that we have more control over. So this is one of those times where people have different beliefs and that's okay. The warning that I just want to give is that people can have disagreements on what is okay. And in the cases where that does come up, and it can and does come up in D&D, it is very important to just stay polite with people who are with you and to just have rational discourse 
on areas where you disagree. And in the event of some issue that has an irreconcilable difference, to simply agree to disagree. So it's okay to play D&D with people of different beliefs and values than yourself. In fact, that's a good thing because exposure to things that are different from you is a great way for you to grow as a person, to understand more about how the world works. And I mean that both in and out of Game Up for that. So simply going back to what I uh, used as a catchphrase a little while ago, don't be a dick. So with that being said, let's start going into some of the more common issues that can come up in a D&D game. And honestly, probably the most common one is racism. And Yay, racism. Oh, God. <laughs> Anyway, I was really not expecting that. So the topic of racism is an unfortunate fact of our reality and in D&D is very often used to illustrate just differences between different characters and types of creatures in the world. So with that being said, there's one important distinction to be made that a lot of people don't understand or just fully appreciate in the real world, which is the fact that humans have different ethnicities, but we are all still human. So the sheer amount of racism that exists in the world, to be blunt, I find to be ridiculous, stupid, and incredibly unfortunate that it does exist to the level that it does. In this age of knowledge and information, I would honestly sincerely wish that that was a thing that we could have left behind by now. Unfortunately, I do understand that that is not the case in real life. In D&D, on the other hand, the word race means something entirely different. In D&D, there truly are different species that we call different races. Now, that line does get blurred a lot more in D&D because, honestly, the ethnicity of different characters in D&D is a topic that surprisingly rarely gets addressed. You don't usually come across someone who is, you know, white or black or Asian or the different ethnicities as we define them. The whole concept of race is the actual species of the various player and non-player characters in the world. Whether someone is an elf or a dwarf or a human is much more relevant to them because in D&D, that type of race of a character has an actual literal difference of them to other races in the game. There are quantifiable mechanical differences between an elf or a dwarf or a human or any of the other races. So there is that inherent like dexterity bonus to elves or the strength bonus and constitution bonus for, you know, certain dwarves. So the actual mechanics of the game do give more weight to what races are in game. So that's just on the more definition side of things. So the question then becomes is where or if this is a topic that you want to address. Yes. So the way I see it, there's actually a it's actually a very good way to um, have a good conversation in terms of narrative about racism in real life as well, because it 
it's a very since it's in um, everyone here is fictional in this world. It's a very good space in which to explore. Okay, why do people do these things, and what is the extent of to really display certain horrors due to people being scared of certain things or people were different. And then again, that's also this added level of, you know, people are very much clearly uh, different, which remo- re- removes some of the that level of uh, typically you see where everyone technically is the same. So it brings up certain other questions in which if humans were to live with something else that was sapient, um, how would we treat it? And then it's quite interesting because in certain settings you just simply see humans turn out to be utter fucking shitbags and uh, try to kill the shit out of anything that isn't human. Other settings is like, oh, humans are a lot more accepting. And most of the time, it seems that in these settings, humans tend to be a lot less um, prejudiced against different kinds of humans, which is um, interesting because it's that kind of thing where you see, oh, that guy is more different. You technically are still human. So it's a kind of situation where it also brings up the question of if humans were in such a situation where there was an outside force or an outside other that were human, would we be as a species more uh, accepting of each other, which is quite interesting as certain topics to discuss in terms of narrative. Indeed. So this is one of those things where in game, this could be the kind of more interesting social applications of issues that exist in real life in that you can try to play out the situation of in the event of some external threat, do you actually have the people who had previously warred with one another band together to unite against an external threat or do the petty differences create friction and issues amongst a potential alliance so whether that is any of these topics to be honest are something that you want to do in game is something that's worth thinking about because D&D is an incredibly versatile platform in the type of stories that you can tell So if there are just issues that are of interest to you or of relevance to you, then D&D gives you that potential avenue with that angle of escapism even too, of considering what would happen in various situations. What would happen if there's this? What would happen if, you know, there's the nationalism angle, for example. So if you have, you know, a city that is, you know, band together of the various races that live in it, and there ends up being some big war between you know, let's say dwarves and humans. And then there's this one city that has a lot of dwarves and humans in it. Would they decide to stay out of the war? Would they decide to side with their racial faction? So there are so many different angles of different stories that could potentially be told through a real life controversial issue. And doing such a thing can be a very valuable thing as well as a very entertaining thing if it goes well. Now, on the out-of-game side of things, it is very much worth mentioning. If there is a person who seems to, uh, how do I put this politely, uh, have issues that you, or have opinions that you rather strongly disagree with, 
then I mentioned that you can agree to disagree. But if there is a degree to which you cannot do that or that that just cannot work and still get along with one another, then that is something that can be problematic, to say the least. And it can be an issue that can have you decide maybe this isn't the group of people that I want to play with or maybe this is not a person that I want playing in my game. So if you are the dungeon master of a group, then you always do have that power of is this a person where I cannot agree with or get along with this opinion that they have or if it is the situation where you're a player and are amongst a group that has such opinions well that's one nice thing about living in the time we do is that there are many many options of finding a new group to play with I sincerely hope that that is never a situation to come up but i also cannot imagine that that has never come up anyway yeah i can definitely imagine such situations and that would be terrible indeed and also just on the lighthearted ish note to wrap up the race side of things i'm not talking about the you know having a character who hates drow or having a character who hates tieflings or dwarf who hates elves that is a more common trope that exists in D. however that actually can be something that a D can focus on because that is a type of racism that we generally do tend to laugh off but a dm very much has the capability to make the choice of no no that's not okay and to have there be consequences in world if a character should make such a declaration so a dm and a full group altogether absolutely has the power to decide what is okay and what is not and what is the line of having gone too far so, i do have to say to add on yes. to what you said remy about having characters who are very racist against a certain race it's there's something to be said about um heroism against your beliefs so for example imagine this dwarf doesn't really like gnomes or something like that along those lines um, and he's split in a situation where he's the only one who can save a certain gnome. If he were to save the gnome, it would be a lot more heroic than to have him as someone who was very racist against gnomes decide that despite him having a general dislike towards gnomes and gnomes as a race to save the gnome, that would be more heroic than somebody who is just, I like, I just save everyone. I don't really care. And yeah, it's something about fight, like trying to fight against your yourself as um, the bad things that you believe in and trying to rise above it. Exactly. And it's because of issues like that that I absolutely do believe that having race be relevant in a D&D game is a branch of potential storylines that can be worth exploring. So moving on from that onto sexism. This is actually a area where I have a lot of particularly strong opinions because of the world building angle that I tend to take and just my love of history in general. So there is a very unfortunate fact through our real life history of women being underappreciated. But that does not change the fact that there have been absolutely incredible women all throughout human history. 
history that a lot of people just don't know about. And a lot of that bias seems to stem from the false prioritization of men strong. But obviously, there this is an incredibly complicated topic into the historical reasoning. But I'm keeping it simple because I would feel awkward trying to do that topic complete and adequate justice. So that is just the angle I'm choosing to take this. Anyway, moving on from that. Um, uh, just one tangent, though. If you ever just want to read a kind of interesting topic, just read about female pirates. They're fucking awesome. Anyway, in D&D, though, assuming with my admitted preconceived no you know biased notion of the strength angle that is completely different in a world of magic so in D&D, if you have a level 20 fighter who happens to be a woman, it doesn't matter. She is a level 20 fighter. There are no differences in the biology of characters in D&D reflected in their stat blocks. There's no bonuses or penalties for being one race or another or neither or both or anything. So that would have repercussions on the world itself. So in a world of magic, where there's no easy way to know if, you know, that random person that gets catcalled as they walk by can just throw a fireball and obliterate the building you're in. I would hope that there would be more inherent respect to all people, really. But that, again, is a topic that can be done in many, many different ways. So would you choose to world build from the DM perspective of would there be an inherent equality of gender in a D&D world or would there be biases in either direction just for some kind of magical reason? Would you have patriarchs and matriarchs? Would you have, you know, any firstborn child be the one who is the potential heir to a noble family. So how you could choose to reflect that in D&D is as always fully up to the creative preferences of the DM. And that can allow you to make a lot of interesting kind of social examinations in your D&D world. Some something that does come to mind that would be interesting is would be um the image of maybe in this fan, in this setting oh women are seen as oh they're more likely to get into magic or you know the opposite and maybe there's certain things where people believe that oh women are more likely to get into this style of magic and there's a lot of certain things to be said about that where you can have all sorts of in your world people can have their own preconceptions of certain things where which can give you a bigger idea on how this society works within your world. Indeed. And another just kind of semi-historical angle that could be taken. So another potential angle of why certain biases exist could be for the sake of inheritance. So let's say there's a noble family who only can have a son inherit so that they can, you know, in a last of the line situation of a noble family, if there's like one scion left who is a boy, then that boy could take multiple wives and relatively rapidly repopulate the noble family. And that is something that would be much more difficult for a woman to do in such a situation. But that is not the case in D&D because there are transmutation type spells that exist 
that have a huge amount of potential in all kinds of directions. So for one, you could use like from the really high end, true polymorph, as we talked about the other day, that could be used to turn a woman into a man or vice versa or anything really, because true polymorph is completely unlimited, like on that angle, uh, which also has a lot of social uh, repercussions, let's say, of how that could be used as well for people who are not comfortable in their own skin. There is multiple angles of transmutation magic to make people be the person that they are comfortable as. But anyway, uh, back to the original example, though. So if you have someone just turned into a man temporarily, even if you use something like alter self, that's a relatively accessible spell. And then it would be relatively easy to potentially have that woman impregnate a number of people to try to repopulate the family. So with D&D magic, there would not be the noble line bottlenecks that would create that type of historical bias, which would mean that there's would be a far reduced, if not eliminated reason to have that only males can inherit limit. So you can have there be, you know, female heirs to whatever noble families or kingdoms. So you can have more women in charge of kingdoms should you choose to do so. And you should do so anyway, because they're half the world. Anyway, the point being, D&D magic has a lot of implications from the world side for many, many issues that can exist in our world, unfortunately, that should not be in the D&D game. All right, next up, religion. So this is another one that has some interesting angles to it from both the in and out of game sides of things. So in game, there are many different gods that are able to be worshipped. There are clerics and paladins who, depending on the interpretation you use, quite literally get their powers from worshipping a divine figure. So in a world where it is not belief in deities, but a known fact that deities exist and can give you powers, it would make a lot of sense for a D&D world to be more religious because fact versus the need of just belief. So if you knew, oh, yeah, you know, that Bahamut, he'll, you know, circle around this mountain every third moon. I don't know. You get the idea. But when you can see a god with your own eyes, potentially, or to have literal proof of miracles through clerics and paladins, that changes how religion would work in a world because it's real. It is literal. It is right there. So there are a lot of interesting angles that can be taken, whether you go the direct route of having a cleric in the party who just gets a message from an angel like, hey, you guys got to go deal with this shit over here. You're the closest cleric. So if you could help, that would be swell. Thanks. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you're, you all get to go to heaven if you die for helping. Yeah, thanks. Bye. <laughs> That being said, there is also another aspect that this can be uh, singing from. So imagine a world where gods aren't confirmed. Like you can, there's no good way to prove it, but all you see are the effects of God. So for example, clerics do get powers. Some of them do. So it's a case where imagine the um like those people who were scholars and stuff being like, where does this magic come from? People would argue maybe there actually are gods. And then other people would just toss that aside and be like, they must be practicing a different kind of magic. You know, there's all sorts of ways that you can interpret such things in a world where it's a bit more ambiguous and it can create this very, very interesting dynamic between 
between uh, arcane magic and holy magic and the way that each group sees each other. And you can even have situations where this um, this course could fall apart and certain groups will not be happy with each other. Maybe like academic wars could be fought over it. It's just interesting how this kind of thing can be taken to to its extreme. So next up, wealth. Wealth in a D&D world has quite a lot, arguably more repercussions than even wealth inequality in the real world. So in the real world, there's definitely a lot of issues with it. And actually, no, I don't want to talk about that. Moving on to just the in-game side of things. So in-game, having a large amount of wealth is incredibly important because that gives the wealthy individuals access to magic. And that does not automatically mean access to magic for themselves, although that is also potentially the case. But what I mean in particular is a wealthy enough person can hire spellcaster to cast a general, um, just some amount of magic. So exactly what the case is for that is very much different world to world. But generally speaking, the usual formula that is used for Adventure League is that the cost of such is supposed to be the level of the spell squared times 10. So a level one spell, 10 gold, level two spell, 40 gold, two times two times 10. So that second one is of particular interest of and relevance to me because Lesser Restoration is a second level spell. And that spell just flat out cures diseases as well as conditions like blinded. So in world, it only costs 40 gold to hire a spellcaster to get rid of diseases. And that is not limited in any way, shape or form by rules as written. The only suggestion in the Dungeon Master's Guide on the diseases section is that magical diseases may not work from that spell, although a lot of them still do. So in D&D, cancer, meh, dealt with 40 gold. Diabetes, dealt with 40 gold. All of these life-affecting conditions that harm us in the real world only cost 40 gold to get rid of. Remy, would you remind me how much 40 gold is using your <laughs> math translated into real-life sure. USC? So we talked way back in the wealth episode that there is a general conversion that can be done to get an idea of how much things cost in D&D. And the formula that I came up with based on the cost of things in gold versus how much they cost in our world based on a lot of comparisons, but primarily food and the inns and such, uh, for more information, listen to our wealth episode, is about $100 to one gold, which would mean that that 40 gold would be $4,000. So in our world, that is a somewhat significant amount of money. On the other hand, if you have a lifelong condition such as diabetes or cancer, that is a drop in the bucket to what such would cost over the course of your lifetime. And I have type 1 diabetes, so I'm well aware of I would absolutely immediately pay $4,000 if I could just get rid of that. That would be life-changing for me. So in D&D, however, 40 gold is not readily available. Most people in game, so they're your, so hirelings, are defined as just the regular people in the world. I'll keep it relatively simple on second thought. 
So untrained hirelings who just can do basic, you know, not significant tasks like, you know, cleaning, manual labor, get paid two silver a day. So with cost of living, they don't get a lot of savings. And even a much better trained person, a skilled hireling, makes 10 times that amount, which is two gold a day. So that is where the line gets somewhat interesting. So a person who makes two gold a day, in theory, could live below their means and just kind of live not super well, but might, with months or more of saving, get that 40 gold should they have such an illness. But for the most part, most people would not be able to afford that 40 gold. So wealthy people in D&D would absolutely have generally just better health than those do not. And I mentioned a little bit earlier that wealthy people also would get more access to magic, potentially through training. And now I'll give some more detail on that. In theory, any significantly intelligent person, with so with a minimum intelligence score of 13, if you go by the multi-classing rules, in theory, anyone with 13 intelligence can learn wizardry. Now, where that really can become different. So actually, uh, sorry, backtrack a moment. So a wealthy person has the money to hire tutors for their children, which makes it more likely for them to meet that minimum standard of intelligence. However, they can also cheat. There's an item called the headband of intellect that is an uncommon magic item that has the effect of automatically making the person wearing it have an intelligence score of 19. So anyone who could afford an item like this would be, well, amongst our world, one of the smartest people in the world. So at the far end of the bell curve of intelligence, they would be way up there. So an automatic 19 intelligence and all it takes is the wealth to have an uncommon magic item. And it could even be argued that if you had one of these and then just used that through some amount of adventuring, then if you can just level up enough to, let's say someone was born and just by the time they get to wizard school only had, you know, 11 intelligence. If they got the headband of intellect and then just studied up enough to get to level four and get ability score improvement, put two points in intelligence, and then they would naturally have that 13. In theory, like a headband of intellect could then just get passed down and just the ability to pass down an item like that, just that's an uncommon magic item that is another on my list of world changing items because that could potentially give an entire family line the intelligence to learn wizardry and with wizardry comes magic which comes power which comes more wealth which you know generations and generations pass and it makes sense then why wealth just builds upon wealth over time and that you know is definitely a story that could be told in a D&D game <sighs> All right, so now we're going to take a somewhat downturn in topic even farther, but something that has to be said. It is very important for all people at the table to just have an understanding of what are the moral boundaries of acceptable behavior as well as acceptable storytelling. And I'm kind of just dancing around it, sorry, just because I don't want to talk about it, to be honest, but but should. So rape is an issue that is fucked up. It's 
Yeah. So, however, D&D is a world of gods and monsters, and the idea of that never happening is inconceivable. If there are people with power, then there will be people who do not like to be told no. And in a world where a spell like Charm Person exists, there are potentially horrifying things that could happen. Thankfully, the silver lining to it is that there's also spells like Zone of Truth to eliminate the worst of the he said, she said just locks that can happen in courts because it's much easier in D&D to get the truth of a situation. But that is very much a hardline issue for good reason for many people. So a dungeon master should be cautious about whether that is a topic that they wish to portray or mention in game or whether it is something that would just not be the case. So I would sincerely hope that there's DMs who build a world where that doesn't happen because of Zone of Truth and there being much more magical justice available. So that would be a story that I would be much more happy with, is just that not being a thing. But it is a thing in the world, and it is a thing on the table, but Dungeon Masters should be cautious about using issues like that. So on that similar note, there is a trope in movies, never kill the dog. And in D&D, part of a Dungeon Master's job is to tug on the heartstrings of their players. That's the reason that so many player characters are orphans is because they don't want to give the Dungeon Master the option of, you know, holding their family hostage to create dramatic tension. Yeah, you dick. But the other angle, of course, being the death of a child, also being something that a lot of people understandably have issues with and don't want to have their escapist fantasy have such a serious issue. So for players listening to this, if you have an issue that you have very strong feelings about not having come up in your escapist fantasy, mention it to your dungeon master. I would sincerely hope that all dungeon masters will be reasonable individuals should that come up and on the others on the other side of the coin dungeon masters think about whether that is a series of issues that you want to talk about at all because for the most part DD is escapist fantasy because we want to just go out and do cool things and again depending on the game you may or may not want to kind of poke into the dark holes of the world so before we wrap up let's just have one final issue that is not so dark. Sentient rights. In D&D, there are multiple different ways to create life. There's the normal way, but then there's also magic. So Awaken is a spell that can grant sentience to a plant or animal, which is odd to say the least. But then that creates a question. If a druid or a ranger were to, you know, grant sentience to a bear, does that bear have rights? Like what? It's just that it's a strange question to think about. Like if you have a bear that is a person by most modern definitions, they are sentient and sapient or whatever word you want to use. They are alive. So how do such creatures get treated in your D&D world? 
are there like cities that have disputes, you know, like some people would have tariffs based on certain moral issues. So are there certain cities that have a lingering disagreement about, you know, awakened rights? Or on the other side of things, there's true polymorph again, which can literally create life out of an object. So you could even create a person who is not born through conventional means, or you could just create just living creatures of various types. That is a very, very, you know, open-ended spell. So if you have a person who was not born, but is alive, do they count as a person for the sake of, you know, citizenship or whatever other rights may be available in your setting? And what I have seen before, and I do wish I would see more of, to be honest, Warforged. So part of the lore of Warforged is searching for the questions of if they are truly alive, do Warforged have souls? And that entire angle of storytelling is one that I happen to be incredibly fond of, because that type of existential question would make total sense for such a for such a being. So this is really a cool topic that I wish just more dungeon masters would play with of do sentience created through non-standard means have the right to life. So in summary, there are a lot of issues in the real world that can make very interesting stories of in Dungeons and Dragons. But at the same time, those same issues are often very much potentially disagreeable. So Dungeon Masters and players alike should have just open, honest conversations of what kind of game you want to play, because as always, the end goal with all of this is to just tell an interesting story and have fun. Thanks for listening to this episode of Riffs and Rules. Please leave us a review and give us five stars on iTunes. Also, support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Tier stars loads a dollar and even that much really helps us out. Supporters get benefits such as behind-the-scenes content, access episodes, access to the Patreon Discord, where we'll be able to chat with the cast, and even a shout-out on the show. Find us on social media, on Twitter at Riffwake Podcast, on Facebook as Riffwake, and on Reddit on the subreddit r slash Riffwake Podcast. And now, send us an email, riffsandrules at gmail.com. That's riffs, A-N-D, rules at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Bye! When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.